just yesterday, someone asked me, in your art, do you process your emotions and your trauma? And I would say, no, that's not what's going on. Mm. It's bigger than that. I feel that what happens in the paintings is goes into the realm of myth and beyond time. So sometimes I'm being prepared for the future. I'm being changed by the painting, like I'm having a new idea, a new imagination of something, a new perspective. I'm learning something. I'm going through something while I'm making that. And it is not necessarily about processing the past. It might even be about becoming the future. Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited and honored to introduce you to a beloved teacher that I had, Joan Hanley. She was born an artist and has spent her entire life being dedicated to that. She's a teacher. She's a creative arts mentor. She's the author of one of my favorite books, Combining Art and Yoga, which is a book I have used many, many times and shared with a lot of a lot of people through retreats and just using art as a way to move some of the emotions through the body. She works from her studio in Harrisville, New Hampshire, and her magical paintings are shipped worldwide. She also has opportunities to work one-on-one with her as well, and I can't wait for you all to get to know her. So welcome, Joan. How are you? I'm really well, Meg. It's great to see you again. Mm, Thank you. You as well. So let's just dive in. What does it mean to be born an artist? What did your childhood look like and how was art a part of that from the beginning? Well, I'm sure some of your listeners have this experience. I looked around my house and there were very few things that were paintings or painted or prints, but pretty young, I knew that that one lamp that had a painting on it had something to do with me. And I spent a lot of my time, I was particularly interested in the cartoons, my first, The Cat in the Hat and Green Eggs and Ham, you know, these books, the picture books as a child were huge to me. And I pretty soon started drawing cartoons and stories about my family and stories about my experience. So some of us are born what they call sensitive, right? You know, with our emotions easily affected and For me, as a child, making art, making things, drawing things always helped me to be able to sort out what was going on. It's funny, just yesterday, someone asked me, in your art, do you process your emotions and your trauma? And I would say, no, that's not what's going on. Mm. It's bigger than that. I feel that what happens in the paintings is goes into the realm of myth and beyond time. So sometimes I'm being prepared for the future. I'm being changed by the painting. Like I'm having a new idea, a new imagination of something, a new perspective. I'm learning something. I'm going through something while I'm making that. And it is not necessarily about processing the past. It might even be about becoming the future. Mm. I'm just trying to hold on to every word you just said. Yeah, that really opens it up to be so much bigger. Yeah. Mm. Now, what what happens when... 
you are feeling an emotion, is art a place you go if you're feeling angry or disappointed or sad? Like, is it used in a way like that for you? Or do you have other tools that you use in those moments? No, I mean, absolutely. I would go to painting if anytime I feel out of sorts. And for me, if I don't have a few different spaces, like if in my life I'm not having my meditation practice, if I'm not getting to the studio and painting, and I would even say if I'm not making the time and space to have intimate, relaxed, fun, and deep conversation with the people that I love, with my friends and family, like in all of those things, I might find myself feeling really tense and not comfortable in my skin and grouchier than I want to be with the people (laughs) I love. And to go to the studio and be involved in color and form and that intuitive, somewhat dreamy for me space, fully engaged. It's, yeah, very transforming. And even when I was a yoga teacher, you know, people didn't know, but I often had like paints and canvases in my suitcases. And if people were going through difficult things and I was involved in some of those projections and really having to hold on to my neutrality, I was back in the room painting because that was giving me a kind of refuge and remaking of the world that I needed to be fresh the next day to teach. Wow. Yeah. What did it look like as a child in relation to your emotions? You mentioned the word sensitive. Did you always feel sensitive? And did you feel it was okay to be sensitive as a child? No, I'm sure I was teased by my family members for being too dramatic and for being too imaginative. I think it took me a while to learn that I couldn't talk about the way that I perceived the world to my parents because they would get a very worried look on their face because I was so involved in my imagination Mm -hmm. and felt things so deeply. It They felt worried. It was too big for them. (laughs) You know, they were hoping for something more grounded. And um, yeah, so I grew up Catholic. Sometimes they would bring us to mass in the middle of the day, and I would get so spaced out meditating in the church. I would just walk out of the church and walk home in the middle of the day. And my poor mother would open the door and I'd be standing there, you know, at one o'clock in the afternoon when I was supposed to be in second grade, you know, uh, over at the church. Those things were really, I think, disturbing to my parents and troubling. I had an invisible friend. I would just take all kinds of things in the house and cut them up and sew them differently, paint them. To me, what was natural to do was often disturbing <laughs> to mm-hmm. someone just trying to kind of keep a clean house. And, you know, I would get a new winter coat and just have ideas about it and cut it all up and remake it. And for me, that was a natural way of being. Yeah. Mm, yeah. What did your parents hope you would become? Did they support you? wanting to become an artist? Did you even know you wanted, that's the language that you you wanted to become? Well, it's funny. I found a matchbook at some point when I was, I think, maybe in about third grade because I could read. I found a matchbook that's advertising an art course you could mail away for. And so that they had an address, you could make a drawing and send it in and they would you know, if you paid money, I guess, registered for something, then they would send you art classes in the mail. And I was in a working class house. I didn't know anyone who took art classes. And uh, so I made the drawing and I managed to get someone to help me mail this thing. And they called my home and my father picked up and 
you know, that explained to my father, they were trying to sell him these art classes for me. And he said, look, we're not going to do this. You know, no worries. <laughs> it's not in our budget. And the man, uh, God bless him on the other side of the end of the phone said, look, week after week, I get all these drawings in the mail for people wanting to take this course. And I haven't seen anything with the power of what your daughter sent me. So even if you're not going to buy this course from me, at least buy her some art supplies. Mm. And my father really heard him. And that next Christmas, I got my first oil paints. And so this odd man from the matchbook really helped me. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And when you decided to go to school, you went to school for art, right? Was this, were you set on that path of becoming an artist or were you still exploring other areas? Absolutely. I think when I was 17, I left for Hartford Art School in Connecticut. And at that point, my parents knew me well enough and they knew that nothing, you know, I wasn't going to do anything else. They just thought I would go to Hartford Art School, get trained, and I would come back and live at home and paint. They never imagined that it was possible to have a successful life, which I have as a creative person. Yeah, it was not in their their box. Yeah. Mm. But they were willing to to support me and help me. I mean, I worked through school a few jobs, and but... They definitely supported me and made it possible for me to go to college and art school. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. Would you talk a little bit about how you have combined yoga or meditation, how you've combined these spiritual practices with your art, the part of your process? Well, I certainly have not invented this combination. It's probably as old as us being human beings that we have, you know, as shortly after Homo sapiens stood up, they started painting on the walls. They didn't need to do that. You know, they, they needed to tend the fire and hunt, gather food, but we've always needed a spiritual life. It's a natural inclination, and we have always needed a creative cultural life. Certainly, both of those things are sometimes done in a way that are helpful or not helpful, but the, and throughout, you know, the history of all religions, there have been arts and very specific. And so for me in high school, I started meditating and I had probably been doing something like that in my family religion of Catholicism in churches, especially because I'm at an age when I was very small, the mass was in Latin, so you didn't really understand what was going on. That actually made it more meditative. So I guess I was 14 when I learned to meditate and I decided to major in art in high school which was possible in New York City where I was going to school. Yeah, that's when it started for me as well was high school with focusing on photography and then and then eventually going to school for for that as well. Do you believe everyone is creative? Definitely. I've never met a child that doesn't enjoy drawing. Yeah. And if you really want to know what's going on with a child or to listen to their imaginative play or take an interest in their drawings, it's probably the best way. Mm. That's a perfect example. Yeah, I've never met a child that couldn't connect with that part of themselves. Even um, I was recently playing Lincoln Logs. <laughs> with a little nephew, and that became this creative process in a way. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Are there any ways that you know through working and teaching and mentoring 
that someone can find their way back to it in the sense that maybe they've lost that sense of creativity, that that part that they've connected with themselves. Do you have any tips for anyone to connect more with that part of themselves? I think there's both inner work and work in the world. So engagement in culture, the best way to find your voice as a poet is to read poetry and learn the poetry that you like, to engage in literature and stories that you resonate with or you're attracted to. And similarly, I think we all get up in the morning and we get dressed and each day it really matters to us which color we wear. It's not arbitrary. I mean, you don't have these four different colored turtlenecks because they function differently, right? They're all going to give you about the same amount of coverage and warmth. But some days it really is the red one, and some days it's the black one, some days it's the white one. Or most of us, if we look at our wardrobes, we will see some colors more represented than others. And that already is telling us about how we are creatively expressing ourselves in the world, that it feels right to us to go out and be red or to be gray or to whatever the color is. You know, at night we dream. That is the psyche speaking with us, dancing with us. There's all kinds of imagery and themes arriving Many people don't remember their dreams, but usually if you make a little space, you will. Mm. I think there is also to notice, do you doodle on the side of your paper when you're on the phone? (laughs) For some people, it's arranging a garden or knitting a sweater. You know, it doesn't, there are many mediums and none are higher or lower. So I think trusting yourself about the way you want to express your creativity. Some people do that the way they arrange their home. Yeah. I doodle on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Every notebook. Every notebook. Mm. Yes. Yeah. What we talk a lot about here on this podcast is starting to understand what it is we are feeling and creating and understanding that the language of what our emotions really are because so many of us are completely disconnected from even knowing what it is we're feeling right when you ask someone how it is they're feeling most often Brene Brown did some research on this, and people can identify three emotions, happy, mad, and sad in the moment. That's on average, three. And now while there are over 87 emotions, but we can only actually identify three, typically, the average person, in the time we're experiencing something. Does art or meditation, whatever whatever practice it is you're calling on, help you to more clearly identify what it is you are feeling. Like say, you know, you might sit down and think you're angry, but then somehow through the process you understand, oh, what I'm feeling is disappointment or grief, something underneath the anger. Do you have that experience through art? Yes. And I do think that if you want to live a creative life, a good step is to know what you're feeling. That level of awareness is going to be helpful for a few reasons. One is it's it's like our internal weather. So it's good to know, like if I look out to this scene out the window, it looks different to me. Those rocks look different to me on days when it's sunny than on days when it's cloudy or when it's raining. And so, for instance, when I run a critique group, even if we're talking about our art practice, I always ask people to meditate for a couple of minutes first 
And then just to notice like how their body feels, how their mind feels, and what their emotional state is. Because when we're aware of that, we can actually receive each other's art more deeply and not just project what we are feeling on what we see Mm. and make. So by listening to, oh, today I am feeling deflated and disappointed, sometimes acknowledging that can allow you then to have a different experience because you don't need to act that out in your life so you can see it reflected, Mm -hmm. to hear it. You've already stopped and gotten that, (laughs) that message, that image that you're in. I heard Jane Hirschfield, who's a poet I really admire, both as a meditator and she's a remarkable artist, say the other day that she wants to live a 360-degree life and that her hope from her practice of engaging in art and meditation, I'm paraphrasing now, I hope accurately, Mm -hmm. is that those practices help her show up not to the difficult moments so that she can have all the moments or maybe for you, that would be all 87 of them. The mm-hmm. emotions could be felt and experienced. So the 360 or 87 or whatever that word is for the full spectrum of human life, both the arts and meditation can be practiced in a way that helps us have that 360 degree life. Mm, that's really beautiful. And please correct me if I'm misinterpreting this. I'm almost seeing it as a way to have an awareness of what it is we're feeling, that art can help us understand better what it is we're feeling. It can also help us to move it through the body and not get stuck there. And that last piece when I think of this 360 degrees, is presence. To be able to be present for the moment. Am I getting this right? Am I picking that up in that way? Absolutely. And life is precious and full of deep pleasure and satisfaction when we're not holding anything out, including the most painful moments, the deepest losses, which we all face, losing people we love, the disappointment of things we really want, not happening, feeling misunderstood or disrespected or worse. Human life is a very mixed bag of events. And it is absolutely natural to have that wide spectrum of feeling to those many things. In fact, it's where our deep ethics and creativity and our character comes from, living those experiences. I remember raising my children when they were small and my husband helping me to understand that I needed to teach them to be kind and gentle, like with animals or with each other, that we cultivate this full spectrum, both of to be able to tolerate disappointment and anger and loss and grief as well as to be able to cultivate generosity and kindness and other love, other emotions that give us so much satisfaction. It's like the whole project has to happen. And if you are trying to reject anything, then a very different kind of chemistry starts to happen in your life. Mm. That's a big sentence for me, (laughs) that last sentence, if we're trying to reject anything. Than a whole different chemistry. 
It's, mm, yeah. I'm also seeing this from a different perspective than, of course, that's the beauty of these conversations. Just like we use music and movies to allow us to feel something, we can do that same practice with art. Whether, you know, it's a song that comes on that brings us back to a moment or a song that breaks something open in us and allows us to feel our sadness or grief or joy, whatever it might be. So I'm now looking at this from the perspective of someone viewing the art. Do you ever get to be witness to people experiencing your art? through the lens of their life? Oh, well, that's what they do. Yeah. That's how it happens. Yeah. So last week I had an opening and got to watch people, you know, look at my paintings, many of them seeing them for the first time. They might have seen an image of them on Instagram before, but not stood in front of them you know, some of them buying them to live with them. And that's a really deep relationship. And the first thing people do is they look for themselves and where they are. Absolutely. And visual art is a little different than movies because movies are in time. So when there's something difficult going on in a film, we know that it's not going to last forever. And so we can usually tolerate films dealing with the difficult things in life easier than we can a painting of it can feel overwhelming because it's just there. I think the best paintings for me have some bit of that 360 degrees in it so that I hope that people can always find a way to connect. My painting, the show that's up now is figurative. It was interesting to me. Some people, when they stood in front of the paintings, would even make the posture of the figure in the painting, unconsciously just stand that way, mimic the, what they saw. Yeah. So that's how deeply we take those things into our bodies. Wow that mirroring happening in real time. Would you share with us a piece of art of yours that you love and the story of how that piece came to be? Yeah. When we were just talking about the mimicking, I was thinking of an image from this exhibition, which I can give you a photograph of. I don't know if you post things with your podcast. I do. Yeah, that'd be lovely. Yeah. So this is a painting called Three Bodhisattvas. And it's a painting of my daughter and her partner having a conversation in an art museum. And next to them is a pedestal which has a Buddha on it, standing Buddha. And I made that painting because... I was just thinking about young people like yourself and this world and how hard it can be to negotiate finding your family, finding your place, your work, and also feeling all these young people who are so sensitive in this world that is has deep trouble. And I felt like I just saw the, the bodhisattva nature of these young people who are suffering. Mm. Even though they might appear successful, beautiful, certain things really together, that there's, it's difficult. And Gender roles are changing, societal roles are changing, the, you know, the environment can be very troubled, you know, there's just a lot of things that your heart can just break open from. I was just feeling that in this 
young generation coming into the world right now, how beautiful they are and how the struggle that they've taken on is also beautiful, even though it's difficult. It has a deep beauty. If somebody doesn't know the term bodhisattva, can you explain that? There may be people listening who, who don't know what that means. Bodhisattva is a word from the Buddhist tradition, and it refers to those who have a lot of spiritual awakening, but decide not to sort of evolve out of this world, but decide to stay in this world and feel the pain in order to help others. Mm. I've never heard it explained that way. It's That's so beautiful and that resonates so deeply with me and in the work and the journey that I, I feel that I'm on. Thank you. Do you have a favorite piece of art from another artist? Something that you, I loved how you explained almost that the willingness or the desire to look at in your home, maybe every day, and it may not, you know, it may be pure joy, or it may mean something else. Do you have a piece that you love that you had to surround yourself with? Absolutely. I'm thinking of so many pieces that I live with. One, I don't know the artist. Someone gave my husband, before we met, a tanka which is a, a large painting of the spiritual realms from Nepal that they had bought in Nepal. But I think it's a Tibetan artist. And I look at that one all the time and see something different. I also have a friend, Sean Delaney, who I have one of her landscapes at the top of the first of the landing as you go upstairs. And her landscapes are very gestural and simplified. And I always feel that painting is talking with the weather outside, the weather inside me. It just like resonates and connects. And I have a Mark Milroy painting of a Canadian goose <laughs> sitting on a nest that has a certain melancholy quality. And I think that's a very nice thing to have too, to have some paintings around you that have these different feelings, but that you can sort of delight in that melancholy. And then when you meet it in yourself, like you've learned something from that painting about taking that melancholy lightly, or, you know, it's humor, it's beauty, it's funkiness. Mm. And there are paintings like Rembrandt, Vermeer, Bernard. There are certain artists that when I look at them, I feel I can, you know, just go right, actually right out of my body into some sort of vast state of imagination. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of all the art I love now in my home and in my experience and photographs that I've taken over the years, that it's fascinating of how many probably hundreds of thousands of photographs I've taken at this point and that I can have a few that really stand out. And I think there's this connection for me, which is why I was so excited that you agreed to be on this podcast. It's something we haven't explored yet in this podcast and this idea of art even if you don't consider yourself a creative person which i too believe everyone is creative that art can be a way to allow us to feel more deeply and to understand what it is we are feeling it can allow us to access things within us that we didn't we maybe weren't conscious of absolutely one of the greatest assets of a human being is imagination and imagination needs to be cultivated just like anything else and that's what the arts do 
they cultivate imagination. And that allows you that 360 degree life. And it also allows you to relate to the world from a deeper level. You can, through being with a piece of art, enter someone else's world. Hmm. And as you enter their world through the doorway of imagination, that opens your capacity to relate, to empathize, your ideas and can be questioned. The whole thing becomes fluid and alive. It really activates your humanity. Mm. I'm getting so much out of this conversation and really connecting myself with that deeper creative part. What does meditation look like to you? And how do you practice that within your making of art? What does that look like? I can't imagine living without meditation. To me, it's really just dropping in, taking the space to really feel what it is like to be in this body in this moment, allowing myself to have the space to relax my mind and to witness what the mind is doing. What's the weather like in the mind today? When I meditate, I often have the feeling that as I relax my mind, it actually drops to some shelf in the body, not necessarily always the same place, like it relaxes down into the heart space or it relaxes down into the belly. And I'm almost perceiving my body from a deeper place in my torso. And from that embodied, relaxed, but awake consciousness to feel the world, you know, you can feel a lot. (laughs) And sometimes when we're sensitive, we get the message, we should feel less, you know, we should close down. But actually, that sensitivity is a great asset. And meditation can teach you how to open and really feel a lot and watch it move like clouds on the sky or waves on the water. And that education about how it moves and how things change is its own kind of grounded security. It's a bit like I was saying, when you're watching the movie and something bad's happening, you've learned you can tolerate that because that's not for it. You know, it's moving through. And I think in meditation, we learn, we make the space to witness things move. Mm. I'm now also looking at this through the lens of weather, that our emotions, if we can just treat them like weather, if we can know that they are constantly moving and changing and not allowing ourselves to get stuck. And also, I think a big challenge that a lot of our society experiences and in generations, I'm now starting to really recognize the difference between generations as it pertains to emotions this idea of suppressing and just shoving the emotion down into our bodies. And if we can look at it more like you you said, weather, I really love this idea of not suppressing, allowing, even allowing ourselves the space to be aware of and not get stuck in, have a consciousness and and recognize it's constantly changing and moving. Yes. And there are no wrong emotions. There's no emotion that you should not have. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you're living in this world and you're not experiencing difficult emotions, you're not really alive. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of really hard things going down. You know, this morning we had to hear 
or see or hear about this film of this beautiful young photographer in Memphis being beaten to death. Now, that's a terrible heartbreak. I looked at that young man's website and his photographs, and I just felt this person who was so loving and sensitive. And what a trap. I mean, it's just horrific. So if I can allow myself to just feel crestfallen at the fact that this has occurred in my world, and then to feel grateful that I can go and make more of my work today, and I can go and love the people I love today, that I actually have life. And hopefully I'm more committed to innocent people surviving today. You know, all kinds of things can happen from just taking the hit. That's a terrible thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And in all of our lives, things, heartbreaks happen. And I do think engaging in, in art and culture is a way uh, and to, to begin to curate your experience so that you're not holding out the real difficulties, but you're also supporting yourself with the things that you know help you move with the weather. So you can have a stormy moment where it feels dark, contracted, or angry, or whatever that is. But as you said, you don't get necessarily locked there. Mm-hmm. It, you don't start creating that again and again in your mind because you are actually engaged with this flowing creative thing, which is our world. Because the other thing that's happening right now is a million acts of generosity and kindness and love. Mm. And those are also real. And if I'm open, I can also feel that, you know, so it's a very big, complex thing. (laughs) And we cannot control it, but we can curate what's in our lives and what we're spending time doing and who we're relating to. And I think that's one of the things you mentioned to me that you would ask me about the books that I read. And every night that I don't have a social engagement, I go to bed an hour early with great books. And I think of it, I'm going to go spend the last hour of my day with a few geniuses. Oh. In intimate Mm. conversation. Mm. Yeah. What would you say your purpose is? Oh, boy, that's a big question. I know. I've never asked anyone this question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I have a few because I have different roles and relationships. As an artist, I do feel that I've made some great paintings, and I do feel there are more to be made. I have farther to go, and so I'm a little bit driven to get those paintings done in this short human life and to do the best job I can in that. So that's one purpose, is making of those works of art, which I think is of as my energetic legacy, that they will probably be here after I'm not, depending on how things go down. I don't know. (laughs) Again, I don't control those things. I'm trying to have some positive input, but And then I have a role as a teacher and a mentor. And I think my purpose in that is really to help people be who they are. Hmm. That's beautiful. Are you ready for our rapid fire questions? Yes, I am. Okay. What is your favorite book or two? It sounds like you read a lot of books. Yes, it would definitely have to be a few. My first favorite book was indeed The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss. Oh, yay. And then my next favorite book, when I was 20, I met a young man who was a guitarist in a punk rock band on a bus, 
And he gave me my a copy, which I still have and read regularly, of the Tao Te Ching, oh. which is an you know ancient book from China that has been important in my life and very deep wisdom. I also love Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. Mm. And I guess their talks he gave that his students wrote down. That is a really wonderful book. Okay. I'll have to look at that. What are you currently reading? Well, as I said, I usually keep about 10 books on my nightstand or somewhere in the bedroom and that I just know whatever happens, I'm lucky. I have a home. I can go in there and surround myself with these particular geniuses. And so I grabbed a cup of just a few of them today. One book that's been really important to me over the last year is this anthology of Native Nations people's poetry mm. by Joy Harjo. And I don't know if you know her. She was no. the poet laureate of the country, the last one. Yeah. She's a Native poet, and I so recommend her. And mm. the amazing thing about this book is it's many, many, many Native people's poetry. And yeah, it really fed my imagination of the land we live on and the history. Much of it heartbreaking, but not all of it. What is being the deep mysteries and also the deep heartbreaks of the indigenous people of our country and the deep wisdom. So I love that book. And then I'm reading this book, which is called Do Paintings Bite? This is an old book by Leon Golub, who's an amazing painter who really is able to paint about the darkest things. Just something I don't do. I paint about the most ordinary things, I think. <laughs> mm. But I'm very interested. You can see how many good ideas I've gotten in our <laughs> intimate conversation. And the last one I'm reading, I also love this writer, David Hinton. He's a translator and a writer. His new book is called China Root. And it's about Taoism, Chan, and where Zen came from. And in relation to that journey, this is a particularly good book for me because it has a lot of, you can see it has little Chinese characters in it. And I, since my book was translated into Chinese and I went there a few times, maybe several times, I started studying calligraphy there, learned a lot about using the brush. And so I'm very interested, but a book by David Hinton well, two books by David Hinton that might be even better for your readers just meeting him. He has a beautiful book called Hunger Mountain. Mm. And also he has an anthology called Wild Poets of some Amer uh, how this consciousness of ancient China came up through American poets. That's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Okay, we're adding those to the list. What is one thing you know for sure? That being able to love is the most important thing. Mm. Yes. Do you have a favorite quote or poem, something you would like to leave us with? Yes. Well, I have this little book I just made. Oh. It's called What's Going On? Contemplative paintings by Joan Hanley. Mm. The reason I made this book is I put this exhibition up and my husband, who is Thomas Moore, the writer, was moved by it to write something about my work. And it, what he wrote was so good, I had to make a book out of it. Oh, So I published this little book and I can give you a link if people are interested, mm -hmm. but I wanted to read a short paragraph from it. So this is Tom's voice, not mine, but I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. Art does not state facts. It does not always represent what is out there in the world. Rather, it evokes profound realizations and emotions. 
even relationships and values in all their complexity, subtlety, and levels of meaning. At its best, it makes invisible realities present for our visitation and contemplation. Art is a way of knowing and discovering. Mm. So beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I will have links in the show notes. I will link to her new book. Her Joan's Instagram is at Hanley Studio, and that's H-A-N-L-E-Y. She has a couple different websites. Which website shall we share? HanleyStudio.com. HanleyStudio.com. Beautiful. And you can see her artwork there. So incredibly powerful. And I highly recommend to check out her her latest pieces, which really speak to this time that we have just come through. So, or are still navigating. I wouldn't even say have completely come through, are just still navigating. So thank you so much, Joan, for being here today with us and sharing. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Meg. Thank you for the invitation and for the good conversation. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's Voices Amplified.